following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. We want to turn now to the Word of God as we continue in our worship service. And we're continuing in our series in the Gospel of Luke. And the title is a little bit different than what you have in your program. It says the lost sheep and the lost coin, going from verse 1 to 10 of chapter 15. But uh, I'm going to sort of push verses 8 to 10, the lost coin, into the next message that I'll preach in a couple weeks. And we're going to only focus on this first parable of the lost sheep. And so if you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn there and follow with me. We're going to read actually all of 1 through 10, though, for the scripture reading so that we sort of see the context of what Jesus is teaching. You can also follow up here on the screen. And it reads, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, speaking of Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's pray. God, help us to understand this joy that you talk about in these uh, verses that we've just read. And help us to identify with that joy and be witnesses of that joy in our own lives. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Before I actually go further, I do want to mention that uh, next week I will be out of town from Monday through Friday, although I will be here on Sunday. I'm going to be at this meeting that you've probably heard me talk about if you've been coming to ICC for a while, this Kadad meeting, uh, which is a gathering of some of my college friends who are all pastors in the ministry. And uh, since 2002, we've been getting together at least once a year We read books together and discuss them sort of like a book club. And then we also share about what's going on in our ministries and in our personal lives. And so we'll be doing that next week. Uh, We've been kind of going all over the United States. We even met in Kenya when I was a missionary there. Uh, But this year we'll be staying more local and meeting up in Lake Geneva, up in Wisconsin. And the book we'll be reading is Facing Leviathan. Uh, by an Australian pastor named Mark Sayer, which explores some interesting facets of uh, church leadership. And so we're really looking forward to that. Just would really appreciate your prayers 
uh, for that weekend as we really share and pray that it would be a really edifying time for one another. Okay? Now, last Sunday, I preached on Luke 14, uh, verses 25 to 35. And in that message, we looked at what I said was one of the hardest teachings of Jesus, in which he, in essence, says, unless you hate your mother and father, your wife, your brothers, your sisters, even your own life, you cannot be one of his disciples. And then not only that, but it says you have to bear your own cross and follow me if you want to be my disciple. And one of the things we said was that he wasn't literally saying you have to hate your loved ones, but what he was saying was that your love for God has to be so exceedingly great so unparalleled that in light of that love, all other loves to anyone or anything else has to appear like hatred. And I think that truth is affirmed when Jesus teaches on the greatest commandment in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 to 38. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And as we pointed out in that message, I think in the church today, there's this sort of tendency to divide this idea of following Jesus and obeying his commands as a disciple and receiving him as our savior so that we will not, in essence, go to hell. But what becomes clear from Jesus' own teaching is that you are either a disciple of his or you are not. There is no middle ground. There is no non-discipleship option in which you say, I just want to be saved and receive the benefits that you give, but I don't want any commitments. I don't want any expectations being placed on my life. In essence, what Jesus says is that life does not exist. It's not possible. There is a couple of verses that we looked at at the very end of the last message, in verses 34 to 35, that I just kind of skipped over, and I didn't really unpack. And before we go into our text this morning, I just want to say a few words about it. It says, salt is good, but if the salt lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, hear let him hear. And it's hard for us to understand what this teaching is about when he says salt loses its saltiness because in our day, salt is just salt. It's just pure sodium chloride. If you don't have salt, you have nothing. But in the days of Jesus, it wasn't like that. Their source of salt came from these mineral rocks that were salty but also contained a lot of other substances. And so you would basically try to extract the salt out of these rocks but if left there for some time, all of that salt would eventually leach out and dissolve away so that you're left with this hunk of rock that has no saltiness at all. And so what Jesus is in essence saying is when that rock loses that salt, it becomes useless. It's useless. It's, it lost the purpose for which it exists. So if we connect this teaching on saltiness with what he has just said about being a disciple, I think what we can say is this. If we claim to be saved and yet do not follow him by carrying our crosses and loving him more than anyone else, we are essentially useless disciples. In other words, when we don't understand this call to be a disciple and follow him, we're missing one of the most important points of our salvation, which is that God saves us so that he could use us for his purposes, his glory. And if we don't, and if we have that divided heart, 
where we would rather live for ourselves, then we, in essence, lose out on the whole meaning of what it means to be a Christian, which is to live for His purposes. Now, before we go on, this is a lot of introductory stuff, but I'm just trying to lay some groundwork before we get into where we are. I just lastly want to just say a couple words about trying to frame where we are in the Gospel of Luke in a bit of where we've been going here. As we said, the first part of Luke that goes all the way from the beginning of the book to chapter 9, verse 50, captures his early ministry in this region of Galilee. And then when we get to chapter 9, verse 51, to chapter 19, verse 20, we get to what we could call part 2 of the book, which is his long journey to Jerusalem and his ministry in Judea, which is the southern region of Palestine. Now, if basically you can think Galilee is like Kankakee or Ottawa or Streeter, Illinois, okay? And Judea is like Chicago and the surrounding suburbs. It's sort of where the action is happening. It's where the capital is. And then we see that the third part of the Gospel of Luke in chapter 1928 to 2453, the end of the book, is his final arrival in Jerusalem and his death and resurrection. So that's sort of the the final part of this book. And in this second part, which we're in right now, is largely where all the parables are found. All these stories that Jesus tells to try to describe the kingdom. And that's what we're looking at this morning, is one of those parables. Now, whenever we study a parable, we should always ask, what is the setting? What is the situation that sparked Jesus to tell the story that he told? And in this case of our story this morning of this lost sheep, the setting is of these grumbling Pharisees who were scandalized by the fact that Jesus was keeping company with tax collectors and sinners. I love the expression on this guy's face. I don't, I don't know. Something about the, the look on this guy's face seems to capture so well what I imagine a Pharisee to be like. Okay? Now, it may not seem like such a big deal to us in our day, but to share a meal with somebody in Jesus' day was huge. When you shared a meal with someone, what you were saying is, I want to have fellowship with you. I receive you. I accept you. You know, I extend friendship to you, okay? And for Jesus to do that with the kind of people that he was doing that with was utterly scandalous because in their worldview, there were clearly some people that you do not associate with. And tax collectors were in that category. Tax collectors, what they basically did was they bid on contracts being put out by the Roman government that was ruling Israel at the time. And if you won that bid, then based on the amount of that bid, you would have to pay that amount to Rome. And after that, everything that you collected on top of that was just pure profit that you would pocket for yourself. And so what happened was that these men were in essence conspiring with the enemy and extorting their own people and becoming filthy rich doing it. In fact... Their reputation was so bad that when they would come to church, when they would go to synagogue, the synagogue leaders would not accept their offering. It was considered blood money. So they said, your money is no good here. Don't even try to put it into the offering plate. They were forbidden from testifying in a Jewish court because they were not considered trustworthy. 
Rabbis even refused to teach them the law. In essence, what they were saying is, you are beyond salvation. There's no point trying to even teach you God's word because you're condemned already. You're going to hell. There's no hope for you. But what we find is that Jesus ate and had fellowship with these tax collectors. I think when we see this framed in this way, in a story like this, it's very easy to side with Jesus and to look down on these texts, these Pharisees. But I think if we're really honest with ourselves, if you've grown up in the church, this is a lot more of a difficult problem than we acknowledge, isn't it? Because you see, Jesus wasn't just ministering to these people. It would be different if he went to some women's shelter and was reaching out to some ex-prostitutes who were trying to rebuild their lives. Or if he went to the public square and was witnessing to tax collectors. But that's not the end of what his relationship with these people was. He wasn't just ministering to them. He was fellowshipping with them. He was inviting them into his house. Can you imagine that? A whore coming to his house? And having dinner with him? Um, In the eyes of the Pharisees, they said, this is just too much. You have crossed the line here. How can you have people like this in your house? How can you actually befriend them and act like they're okay? It's fine. I, I, I sort of wonder... What would happen if you caught me doing something like that as your pastor? How scandalous it may be in ICC saying, do you know what I heard, who I heard was over at Dr. Steve's house the other day? I mean, I don't know what was happening there. I, I don't know. There was, it didn't seem like it was even official business. Like they were just hanging out. And that's just wrong because he's a pastor. You see, this is the question that's on the table for us this morning. How deeply should we associate with those outside the church who may live lifestyles that are contrary to what the Bible teaches? It's a tough question, isn't it? I discovered this tension firsthand because when I was an undergrad at the University of Illinois, I'll be very honest with you, I lived in a very Christian bubble, okay? Uh, Everything that I did was wrapped around my involvement in this campus ministry. Beyond my studies and going to classes. You know, I, I studied with Christians. I ate with Christians. I had Bible study with Christians. I prayed with Christians. I went on mission trips with Christians. And that was my entire life. Church meetings, prayer meetings, Bible studies, mission trips. And then I got to medical school. And ended up living in this big house with a bunch of classmates in medical school, uh, almost none of whom were Christian. And I really began to struggle with this decision. Where do I draw the line? What exactly am I permitted to do with them? And what do I need to do to separate myself from them? And here is the truth. Here is the truth. I think if Jesus was walking the earth today as a man, as he did 2,000 years ago, 
I think all of us would be scandalized by the people that he would be hanging out with and the places that we would catch him in, where we would do a double take and say, do you see where Jesus is right now? Is that appropriate? Is that a place where the Son of God ought to be? That is what gives rise to the story that Jesus tells to these Pharisees. And I just want to bring three very simple points out. Three simple observations from the parable, and we'll wrap up here. The first observation from this parable I want to make is this. Jesus compares us, lost sinners, to lost sheep. Um, He says, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go for the one that is lost. Now, I want to say this. Growing up, for most of us growing up in America, we're too ignorant about sheep to be insulted by what Jesus is saying here. Okay? I want to ask you this. Have you ever stared into the eyes of a dog? It's rather remarkable how intelligently they can communicate through their facial expressions, isn't it? In fact, I think that's why so many people love dogs as pets. is because they seem so emotionally intelligent as animals. Um, in my years living in Kenya as a missionary for five years, um, I felt, I began to feel the same way about cows, okay? I, I never grew up with cows because obviously there aren't a lot of cows in the Chicagoland area. Um, but walking to the hospital and walking to town, I began to have to walk by these village cows all the time. And the truth is sometimes I get weirded out by the stares that I would get from cows, I don't know how to describe it, but sometimes there was an intelligence there. And what I came to realize was that some cows uh, were afraid of me because they just saw me as a stranger. But some cows began to recognize me. (laughs) And I don't know how to, maybe it's all in my head, but I swear there were some cows that knew who I was when I walked by and would look at me with these knowing glances, okay? Now, I have to say this. I never felt that way about the sheep in our village, okay? Never, not once. I'm talking dead eyes, okay? It's like the lights are on, but nobody's home, okay? Um, If a sheep leans over too much, it's not uncommon for them to flip upside down. And I don't know if you know this, but most sheep are too dumb to right themselves back on their feet. And in fact, Sheep will die in this position because they don't know how to get back up, okay? Um, Shepherds report that if a sheep gets lost, the common reaction, if it doesn't know where it is anymore and has lost the rest of the flock, is that it panics. And when it panics, because of the stress, it just collapses on the ground. So that even when the shepherd comes it will often refuse stubbornly to get up again. And that's why in this story, when the shepherd arrives and finds the lost sheep, he's forced to sling it over his shoulders and carry it all the way home. Now let me ask you, are you insulted yet? (laughs) You see, what Jesus is saying is this. We are not lost like a dog gets lost and maybe eventually can find its way home. We are lost like sheep that are too dumb to contribute to their own rescue. 
Isaiah 53, verse 6, says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. I think the truth is that we are living in this age of self-help. Um, there is such a can-do mentality in America, isn't there? It's just this, this is the American spirit that if I can just get motivated enough, if I can just get a little help, if somebody can just point me in the right direction, if I could get a little guidance, I think I can accomplish anything that I want. And there may be some truth to that when it comes to making money or influencing people. But when it comes to our sin, the Bible says to us, we are utterly, hopelessly lost. We are like sheep. We don't know how to find our way back home. You see, the rabbis in Jesus' day taught the people this. If you wander away from God, then that's your fault. And you have to make the initiative to come back to him. And in fact, in that perspective, repentance was a way of showing God that you were worthy of being saved. That you were a soul worth saving because you repented. You're one of the good ones. You feel sorry. So you fail, you take the first step to God. But Jesus said, that's not it at all. What Jesus said was something totally different. He said, you cannot save yourself. You can't. You are more lost than you can possibly imagine. If God doesn't make the first move toward you, there is no hope. That is the gospel that Jesus taught. And that's why in this story, the shepherd is the one that must go to the sheep. He must find that sheep and carry it all the way back home. The second observation that I want to draw your attention to is this, that the cost of the recovery was great. The cost of the recovery was great. As it says here in Luke 15, after he finds the animal, the journey is not over. He has to sling this animal on his shoulders and carry it all the way back home. In other words, the story doesn't end when the animal is found. It has to now be restored. And that restoration is not a non-trivial part of this story. It's interesting, when I Google image search this, almost all the pictures of Jesus carrying a lamb is usually these tiny little cute baby lambs. But the truth is that a sheep can easily weigh over 100 pounds. It was not a trivial matter to carry the sheep back from the wilderness to the village. The difficult burden of carrying this lost sheep back home, though, was pointing ahead, I think, to the suffering that Jesus would have to undergo on the cross in order to purchase our restoration back to God. That's what Isaiah says in 53, verses 3 to 5. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. 
But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. You see, from our perspective, grace is free. But from God's perspective, it cost him everything. The restoration was unbelievably costly from God's point of view. The third and final observation as I wrap up here is this. The shepherd's joy over the discovery of the lost sheep is great. The shepherd's joy over the discovery of the lost sheep is great. What we find in this story is that despite the struggle to carry this wayward sheep back home, there isn't grumbling on the lips of the shepherd. It records that he is rejoicing all the way home. There's joy in his heart because he has found his lost sheep. Philip Yancey writes this, Strangely, rediscovery may strike a deeper chord than discovery. Once in the days before computers, I lost four chapters of a book. I was writing when I left my only cop- I was writing when I left my only copy in a motel room drawer. For two weeks, the motel insisted that cleaning personnel had thrown the stacks of papers away. I was inconsolable. How could I summon the energy to start all over? when for months I had worked at polishing and improving those four chapters. I would never find the same words. Then one day a cleaning woman who spoke little English called to tell me she had not thrown the chapters away after all. Believe me, I felt far more joy over the chapters that were found than I had ever felt in the process of writing them. I think we can all sympathize with that, right? that there is something so powerful about the joy of discovering something that you thought was for sure gone forever, only to find that you recovered it. That's the joy that is being described here in these words. It almost feels more precious when we rediscover it. Not only does the shepherd rejoice throughout the journey, but when he returns back home, What we're told is that he gathers his friends, his neighbors, and he holds this huge party to celebrate, saying, I found the sheep. I found him. Come and celebrate with me. This communal aspect of the joy is absolutely critical, I think, to understanding Jesus' message. Because remember, the setting of the parable is that there were these Pharisees who could not celebrate and experience Jesus' joy for these sinners who are coming home. In the parable of the shepherd, he gathers his friends and his neighbors. In the parable of the lost coin, the old woman gathers her friends and neighbors as well. And in the story of the prodigal son that we'll see in a few weeks, the father holds a great banquet celebrating the lost son. So this theme is echoed in all three of these stories. The whole focal point is a community that gathers to celebrate the joy of the salvation. Now the first implication of this teaching, I think, I want to apply to the church. I want to say this, that the joy of our salvation ought to be the defining experience of the church of Jesus Christ. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, the great theologian during the World War II era in Germany, said this, listen, when you think about what actually causes true community among God's people, he says, listen, 
It's not even ultimately about worship. It's not about praying together. It's not even about serving together and doing missions together. Because what he says is this. The truth is, these are all great things. But the truth is, you can engage in all of these activities. But you can actually hide behind them. And use them, which often happens in church, as a way of masking your insecurities. And trying to make yourself look good in the eyes of people. So he says, when you look at a church and you see them doing missions and praying and doing all these churchy activities, those things are not a guarantee to build true community in any group of people that call themselves Christians. But he says this, the true breakthrough that leads to genuine community that God describes among his people is this. When those people come together and celebrate the fact that all of them are saved, by God's grace alone. That is the beginning to true community among the people of God. Not the community of the 99 sheep that feel so righteous that they feel they have no need for repentance. But it's the celebration that happens because of the lost sheep that was found. Bonhoeffer writes, Those who remain alone with their evil are left utterly alone. The pious community permits no one to be a sinner. Hence, all have to conceal their sins from themselves and from the community. We are not allowed to be sinners, so we remain alone with our sin, trapped in lies and hypocrisy. For we are in fact sinners. However, the grace of the gospel, which is so hard for the pious to comprehend, confronts us with the truth. It says to us, you are a sinner, a great unholy sinner. Now come as the sinner that you are to your God who loves you. This message is liberation through truth. You cannot hide from God. The mask you wear in the presence of other people won't get you anywhere in the presence of God. God wants to see you as you are, wants to be gracious to you. You do not have to go on lying to yourself and to other Christians as if you were without sin. You are allowed to be a sinner. Thank God for that. God loves the sinner but hates the sin. Amen to that. You see, what Bonhoeffer is describing is the joy that is captured in these parables. It is the most liberating joy that a person can ever experience when we all collectively put down our masks and says, I'm not okay, you're not okay, but because of what God has done, we're okay. When the gospel is finally allowed to expose ourselves for who we are, which is failures, we're all guilty, we all fail. And as a community, we come and say, oh, you're like that too? So am I. Isn't that awesome? That we have God who is greater than our failures. And that's my hope as the pastor of ICC. That we would not be unified and rally around a mission to reach Chicagoland area. Or even be rallying around a worship format. Or a prayer lifestyle. But around this joy of our salvation. That enables us to put down our guard. And put away the games that we play of self-righteousness. And says, man, we were all in the same boat. 
And we're all saved by his grace. That is what will unite us as a church. I want to say this. In the last two years, a lot of you have joined our church. Some of you are pretty new to our church. And I know for some of you, you have adapted to this being your home church very easily. Like putting on a well-worn pair of shoes. For some of you, that transition just happened seamlessly. And next thing you know, you're a part of us. But I know for others of you, it's been a struggle. I mean, I know for some of you, you're still wrestling with these questions. Is this really the church for me? Do I really want to do church with these people? Are these really my people? I mean, even as the pastor of ICC, I find it very hard to characterize our church. I think we're kind of a goofy lot, you know? I mean, what exactly do we have in common? Uh, Some of us have not yet finished our college education, or may never, while others in our midst have advanced doctorate degrees. Some of us are just getting started in life, while others have already retired. Some of us are really extremely introverted, and others are just mildly introverted. (laughs) And we have a few of those oddball extroverts in our midst as well. We have Filipinos, Koreans, Chinese, Japanese, Indian, white, Mexican, Vietnamese, Cambodian, and others that I have not even named. And yet, what is it that unites us? Why are we all under the same roof together? It is, if nothing else, the joy of our salvation. It is that at some point in each of our lives, God found us when we were lost. And he brought us together as a community to celebrate in his joy like we see in this parable because he rescued us. And I want to ask you that this morning. What defines you? Where do you wrap your identity? I'm not saying that ICC has to be your church. You can worship God in a lot of congregations. But what I do want to challenge you with is to look beyond All of the things that you can focus on that makes you feel different from everybody else in this room. To find community in the one thing that matters more than anything else. I have been saved by grace. And I'm in the community of people that celebrate that same grace in their lives. These are my people. Because we were all lost and now we are found. You know, I find it interesting when I see veterans run into each other. Uh, And I think the same happens with those who are in law enforcement. Uh, It doesn't, when you see like two cops find out that they're both cops, or when you see two war veterans from the Iraq war or Afghanistan run into each other, it really doesn't matter whether they're Democrats or Republicans, whether they're from the city or from the country, or what their ethnicity is. That bond as veterans or as cops seems to override everything else that may make them different. And I think the same ought to be true of the church as well. Whatever differences that we feel with one another, this bond that we have in the gospel is so much greater than that because of what God has done in our family. And the last thing, and I'll close with this, is this. 
That if we share God's heart of joy for every sinner that is found, this ought to motivate us to share our faith with those who don't yet know Jesus. I think we experience some of God's joy whenever we have our baptism services, don't we? This is a picture from the last baptism that we did here at ICC. And to me, nothing encourages my faith more than to hear the testimonies of what God has done in the lives of the people that are worshiping with us. And in each of our testimonies is someone who came into our lives to tell us about Jesus. And the message of this parable is this, that God wants to use you as his messenger to communicate that message of love to those who don't yet know him, who are still lost and wandering in that wilderness. Bonhoeffer says these words, Sin wants to be alone with people. It takes them away from the community. The more lonely people become, the more destructive the power of sin over them. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of what is left unsaid, sin poisons the whole being of a person. This is a very accurate description of the effect of sin in our lives. It wants to isolate you. It wants to divide you. It wants to destroy you. And the truth is our world is filled with people like that who feel lost and alone in their own struggles with no direction, no hope, no way out. And the message is this. Find community through the salvation. Because God wants to bring you into the community of the lost, the community of the forgiven, the community of the the saved, where you will find a home among people who have gone through the same struggles as you and yet have found an answer through Jesus Christ. You know, when I was, uh, as many of you know, I've been flying back and forth to Flagstaff, Arizona, Uh, every few months to help out this Native American ministry in Northern Arizona University that's going to be planting a church. Actually, right now, (laughs) this is their lawn service today. And uh, as I was flying back on one of these, the most recent trip, you know, I, I always struggle with this when I'm riding an airplane, whether to try to share my faith with the person sitting next to me, because it's just so awkward, you know? And so many times, I just, I just want to sleep, or I just want to read a book, and yet on this flight back, there was this, you know, middle-aged woman riding with me, right, in the next plane. And it's always that, oh, do I, don't I, do I, don't I? But I realized this is the heart of God. He loves the lost. He wants me to reach out. So I took a deep breath and said, hey, you know, um, so where are you going to? And I found out she was flying out to New York. She was a native of Flagstaff and just got to talking. And over the course of that conversation, she began to share about how almost every one of her kids had developmental disabilities and how um, utterly destroyed she was inside because of all the hopes and dreams that she had for her children. And yet now she's just trying to piece together a life that she can live with for them as they're getting into adulthood now. And just, it just turned into this amazing ministry moment on that flight out of Flagstaff. And then, interestingly, she goes, why are you here in Flagstaff? And I shared that I'm a pastor, and we're trying to help these Native Americans, from the, the Navajo and the Apache tribes. And it turns out that her father was, like, uh, deputized to be in charge of one of these reservations. 
And so she started giving me all these insight into Native American culture and connecting me and all these things. And, and I, just by the end of that flight, it was unbelievable what we had shared together or the course of that flight. But I realized at the start of the flight that none of that could have ever happened if I never took the courage to speak out about my faith and was willing to put myself out there on the line. And I think that's what Christ is asking of each one of us, is will you have the courage to lay it on the line and be willing to have some of those awkward moments to tell people about Jesus Christ? You know, in those, that medical, that during those times of medical school, I have to tell you, to be honest, in the beginning, I was much more reserved and held myself aloof from my roommates. And, you know, just every time they wanted to do something, I go, oh, yeah, let's do it. But then they always did an activity that I wasn't comfortable with. And I go, that's right, I'm going to study at home. And, I, and after a while, they began to figure that out, going, oh, don't even ask Steve. He's not going to go with us. But they knew I was a Christian. And we would actually have pretty lively debates about faith in our house. But at the same time, they began to realize but he doesn't approve of our lifestyle. And I don't even know if he approves of me. And I realized that there was a whole retraining that needed to go on in my life as well. And I began to say, God, help me to overcome these psychological barriers that I have. Help me to be willing to go where you would go to find those who are lost. And somewhere in the midst of that prayer, I began to say yes to them. First time it shocked them. I think it was actually, we went to the Riverboat Casino, you know? And so they were like, hey, we're going to the Riverboat again. Do you want to come? And I said no every time. I go, okay. <laughs> I have no idea how to gamble. But I just hung out with them and drink, you know, free colas, you know, and just watch them lose their money. And that began to open the door to a whole different relationship with them over those next years in medical school. And I think that's the life that Jesus is inviting us to to open our table to, quote, sinners. Because the truth is, we are sinners too. And we're sending to them the message, I am saved but by the grace of God. And there is a place for you in the family of God. Let's pray. We're going to be dwelling on this theme for the next month or so of God's love for the lost. And I don't know where you find yourself in your own journey Maybe for you, you may have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe for others, you're interested and you're seeking, but you're really not there yet. There's still a lot of questions that you have, and you're still searching. And maybe for some of you, you're just not really in a situation that could even be described as searching. Um, you know, you're pretty settled in your ways, and you, you have your own life philosophy that works for you. And I want to say, wherever you are in this journey, you are welcomed here in this place. I want to tell you that what brings everyone in this room together to worship under this common roof is that for each of us, we were lost. We thought we knew what life was all about until for most of us at some point, things sort of came crashing down on us. And we realized, I don't know how to lead myself into the life that I want. And it was there in that darkness, it was there in that wilderness that God met us and rescued us. Because of what God has done, there are people in this room who it is not an exaggeration to say we're near death and we're given a, a new lease on life. 
It is not an exaggeration to say because of Jesus. There are some people in this room whose marriages were about to crumble and fall apart, but have been restored. We stand here as the people of God to testify of what God has done for us. We don't stand here as pious Christians to say, I'm better than you. We say, I'm no better than you. I was just as lost. I was just as headed toward that road of destruction until God held out a hand of help to me and rescued me. I contributed nothing to that. It was all him. And now he gathers us together like this as a church family to sing his praises and to celebrate in his joy of that which was lost being found. My sincere prayer for every one of us is that we would know that joy of salvation. We would know what it means to say that because of God, I have new life. We just pray for a few minutes as our worship team comes to close us in a time of response.